Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. I'm your host, Aaron Jones, bringing you the best nonpartisan information from our experts that you need to know. Welcome back to the Need to Know podcast. This is a a treat that we have Michelle Egan back with us again to discuss what in the world happened with the UK elections that occurred uh, at the end of last week. So, Michelle, welcome back. Thank you very much. So I think I think a surprising result in the UK elections with uh, a Tory win. And I guess going back to what I just said, what happened? Well, I think there were probably several issues. The first one is that I know a number of people are saying, look at the implications for the 2020 US election. But this election was fought primarily about Brexit. And I think that's what uh, Boris Johnson did. He had a campaign slogan with get Brexit done, whereas the um, Labour Party did actually have a fairly elaborate manifesto, which didn't gain as much traction as you would have expected. And it was a lot about nationalization, health care, employment, things that people really cared about, but it didn't gain the same traction amongst the voters as you would have expected. So that was the first issue. I think the second issue is that um, there was a massive conservative sweep in many, many labor strongholds. Some of these uh, strongholds had been 98 years, pretty much all the time had been um, an elected labor stronghold. So that was a really significant change. Having said that, the Labor Party did come second in a number of these areas. And, you know, we have to remember that the third issue that I think it showed is the comparison to the United States is a little inaccurate and misleading. Both of us have first-past-the-post systems, but we had seven, eight parties elected in Britain. Mm -hmm. And so from that point of view, England looks like the United States with two major political parties and liberal Democrats. But Northern Ireland and Scotland have a very different political party makeup. Well, that's interesting. And I I do think that there was a rush to kind of say, what does this portend for the U.S. election? To me, that seems a little overstretched. I mean, these are two different countries dealing with two different systems and challenges. Uh, there, When we talked the last time, you mentioned a sort of a look beyond Brexit um, and that there seemed to be a desire in the country to address some of the situations beyond Brexit that are policy problems, you know, dealing with the National Health Service. There was really a lot of uh, let's deal with our infrastructure. Let's deal with our health system. What does a conservative win mean for that? I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean that only labor was going to do those issues. What does Boris Johnson do about those issues? Well, I think he indicated um, after his victory that he realizes the composition of his party has moved northwards and it's in traditional labor constituencies. So he will have to think about electorally, what does that mean? 
And I think that the party will focus on a few issues. I think one of the big issues in this election was what we would think of as identity politics. And that resonates. The Conservative Party, Boris Johnson's message resonates with those voters. Identity politics of things like patriotism, concern about immigration, uh, concern about law and order, those things were actually quite attractive to traditional Labour Party supporters. So they don't have a lot of cost in terms of pleasing the electorate. The second issue will be the commitment that he did make to increase the police force, increase the number of nurses, increase the spending for health care and the National Health Service. That means if he chooses to go that route, that it will be a shift from the prior government policies of the conservatives, which have basically been austerity measures. So that will mean, will we see a massive increase in public expenditure in Britain. The third issue is in getting Brexit done and the trade deals, he's already indicated that he doesn't want a transition period. So what he'd like to do is look at perhaps some European regulations and get rid of some labor and environmental regulations, sort of a little bit like a deregulatory agenda here in the US. But I think that the issue with this is that how much negotiation, how much discussion with business he will do in preparing for leaving the EU and what they want is an open question. Before we get into the Brexit discussion, uh, something you mentioned there that that his constituency has moved northward into what had previously been more labor elected areas. So I guess in trying to understand it from the American side, are these kind of like swing districts? Some of them were swing districts. There was about 70 seats in the election that were considered closely watched. But I would suggest that um, some of these districts had never gone conservative. Some of these districts were the labor heartland. And so not all of them were swing districts. Some of them moved over 2-3% and it made the difference. But in some cases, there were massive labor swings, uh, both in North Northern Ireland and in England. And so, you know, I would say that it's hard to generalize. I mean, some of these areas went from, you know, a majority of eight, 10,000 and then, you know, shifted conservative. That's not a small swing district. Mm. So I think the pattern was really, really mixed. And we'll have to figure that out over the next few weeks. You know, the problem with this sort of electoral you know, mapping is that, you know, we also don't take into account, I think, the generational divide. I mean, I think young people were more likely to vote Labour or Liberal Democrats. Mm -hmm. So I think there was a generational divide. I think the second issue is there was a territorial divide, because if you look, the Liberal Democrats did very, very well in second place in the southeast and in London. So that's kind of where they are electorally. The Labour Party still did second place in northern England, the Midlands and so forth. And then if you look at Scotland, which is very interesting, the Scottish Nationalist Party swept with 48 seats. But if you look at which party was the second party in Scotland, it was actually the Conservatives. So on to Brexit. Um, Prime Minister Johnson has uh, 
really said he we're we're, we're finishing this process. Uh, we will be out. Uh, he's given a date, and what's that? What's the date that he is? Said well, we're gonna the be end out? of January, they will want to leave, and then they'll have a transition period to December twenty twenty. And then he said, "That's it." Okay, so no he extension. said, "We will be out by the end of January." And is he going to get it done? Well, if you look at the compressed parliamentary calendar from a U.S. perspective, there will be the election of a speaker. There will be new MPs coming in who they have to find committees for them. And there will be private member bills. Now, this is unusual. This is the first time we've had a December election since 1923. And secondly, the expectation is Britain will formally leave uh, January 2020 and then have a transition period. I don't even think all of the electoral business and committees will be staffed with chairs by the time Britain leaves. So, Hmm. you know, it usually takes about six weeks and we don't have six weeks before that Brexit deadline. So I think that, you know, they are clearly moving. Um, And then the second issue is the Labour Party will likely, as you are finding out, uh, Jeremy Corbyn said he's not going to stand you know, as leader for the next election, and you're starting to see a jostling within the Labour Party uh, for the next leader. And then finally, uh, the Liberal Democrats, their MP, um, Joe Swinson, did not get lost her seat. So, you know, the other parties are also going through some, you know, internal turmoil as well. So right now, he feels like he has a mandate to get Brexit done. That was his motto. That was his slogan. And it probably resonated with a lot of people. So what does this mean for the United States? And it's easy to look at elections in other countries. And for some of us, that might be all very interesting. But here we sit in the United States. We got our own problems. We got our own trade deals. We got our, <laughs> we got our own challenges. What? Why, why should we care who gets elected in the UK and what that means for the US relationship? I think sort of symbolically, the fact that this was a victory for the incumbent will be very, very interesting and watched in the United States. I think there was an interest about how the left would do and the message of Jeremy Corbyn, and it did not resonate. I would be careful about making the analogy too much that Joe Biden has done, because I think that it was the European center-left that was watching Corbyn, and they have not done very well lately across Europe. But from a U.S. perspective, I think it will be three things potentially in the foreign policy realm. The first one will be trade agreement. Um, The U.S. and the U.K. have already sent signals and have been doing some scoping on this issue. But for the U.K. perspective, it might be some choices between how close to the EU do we want to get in terms of rules and regulations and market access versus how much do we want to trade deal with the US and what that big partner will ask for. And remember, the UK will be at a disadvantage given the size of its market. And the U.S. will really ask for uh, particular asks, probably access to procurement, public purchasing, and probably the issue of drug pricing and selling of medical devices, the pharmaceutical sector. That's the first issue to watch. The second issue will be um, 
Chinese foreign direct investment. Um, Huawei is in the news. The EU has finally started to put in place some controls and review and scrutiny of foreign direct investment, and it's concerned about Chinese foreign direct investment in particular. It's still not as strong in terms of scrutiny as CFIUS, the uh, scrutiny in the United States, but the British will be keen to attract foreign direct investment post Brexit.、Mm-hmm. But they also need to be cognizant. Of the rules and regulations in the U.S. and in the EU, which is putting much more closer scrutiny in terms of information technology, infrastructure, and critical sectors. That's the second issue. And the third issue, I think, will be Iran and sanctions. The United States is putting maximum pressure on Iran with sanctions, and the U.K. is part of the JCPOA, the Iran Agreement, and you know it was instrumental in that role. And I think that the United States and the UK will have discussions on it, but I think it's an interesting issue for、e- UK foreign policy about how much they maintain their strong relationship with this、uh, EU foreign policy. What was considered a success? So, talking about a trade deal between the UK and the US, we've been doing a lot of trade stuff. And it strikes me that maybe the UK thinks that this is going to happen faster than it can happen. I mean, what what is the impact to the UK economy if it takes them years to try to forge all of these agreements all over again, including with the US? It will tout and tell you that it's already had a few successes rolling over some trade agreements. So those that were already in place between the EU and a small country, a few of those have been rolled over. The second issue is that the UK is going to want to think about its relationship with the EU first, and if they don't want a transition period past 2020, that's its economic neighbour, that's the one it has a border with, that's the one it's going to have to decide how much rule alignment and regulatory alignment it has to access the single market. That's going to be quite difficult. Any trade deal is difficult. The EU signed one with Mercosur this year. Took twenty years, so that's on the high end. I think the closest trade agreements ever been signed is around twenty-four months. So these things are not easy, and the British. Have somewhat of a trade infrastructure in place, but it's relied on the EU to do this for the last forty plus years. So that's the first. It's got multiple trade agreements. It's not just the one with the EU or the one with the United States. So when it looks to the United States, the Thing that people talk about is we need a trade agreement. I would also tell them to look at the statistics in place about foreign direct investment and the close economic relationship that exists now without a trade agreement. You know, the E, the U.S. invests heavily in the U.K. foreign direct investment or companies there, and vice versa. You know, whether it's in North Carolina, South Carolina, there's a lot of affiliate jobs on both sides. That. Is going to continue regardless of a trade agreement. The final issue is whether Britain panics. 
if Britain panics and offers tariff-free access to uh, countries, and this is what it signaled under the Theresa May government, the Canadians looked at this and said, why would we go to all the trouble of negotiating a trade agreement when um, we can get tariff-free access and without all of the pain of going through the politics of negotiations? The only easy part of this, if there is an easy part, is that the negotiating with the EU requires 28 states to agree, plus, in some cases, regional parliaments to vote on it as well. In the case of the UK, the executive, the cabinet, Johnson's government will be in the lead, and the role of parliament in the process has been quite contentious. And the question that that will have is they will probably be asked to ratify a deal, but and they will be briefed on a deal. But the sort of difficulties in passing a deal with a majority of 365, you know, and a, a healthy majority won't be quite so insurmountable. So, you know, it's not like here where you've, you're seeing the maneuvering between uh, the Democrats in the House and the White House over USMCA. That's interesting, and, and forgive me if I'm, you know, maybe going beyond uh, anything that's intelligent to say here because I'm not a trade expert, but you you know this stuff. You laid out, you know, a possible trade deal, but then you laid out foreign direct investment and the possibility of zero to, of, of tariff free access. With those two other options, are we, is it is that kind of like a some sort of you know? beyond trade deal, beyond free trade agreements, uh, free trade agreements 2.0? I think it's going to depend on how much you want a win. I mean, people are starting to look at the U.S.-China deal and asking, you know, what does this actually mean in reality? It's a win, supposedly, for the administration, but how much have they gained relative to where they were when they started the imposition of tariffs? And so I wonder, you know, what are the ambitions to get a deal done? Will it be looking at some tariffs, and there are tariff peaks in a few areas? Will it try and be more ambitious? And in that case, what will the United States want? Typically, they want access to procurement, you know, government purchasing. Typically, they want access to agricultural markets. And then the issue becomes um, the acceptance of, you know, U.S. agricultural rules, U.S. agricultural standards, what we called SPS, um, TBTs, um, versus European rules. And so those are the kind so of issues. So they could be caught kind of in the middle. They if could they're be. Trying to, if they're trying to placate both sides with two different... I mean, that, that's the whole point of free trade agreements is to sort of streamline and to create an ease of access to markets by kind of creating an even playing field on the standards and regulations. Absolutely. So how do they thread the needle? Right. What the British would like is something called mutual recognition of rules. We have the rules domestically in Britain. Will you accept them in the United States? Will you accept them in the EU? What the EU will push for is they do not want a race to the bottom. They do not want Britain to be more competitive because it's sort of deregulated down. And what they also don't want is the British to have sort of a vibrant industrial policy where they're subsidizing industries. Kind of ironic 
ironic a little bit because the French and Germans have put forward an industrial policy proposal. The United States, sort of during the financial crisis, was bailing out companies, and it was one of the first actions of Trump in this administration. And yet, all of them are very concerned about state-owned enterprises in China. So, you know, it's not the level anywhere near what happens in state-owned enterprises in China. But the point being is that the British are going to have to thread a needle between. EU asks and demands, and U.S. asks and demands, and it's how much they will give on each side is an open question.、Hmm. Well, that's fascinating, and glad that you're keeping an eye on it for us, Michelle Egan、uh, of American University, and also、uh, with our Global Europe program here at the Woodrow Wilson Center. Thank you so much for joining me again to walk through all this. Thank you, Aaron. And with that, we're going to take a little break for the holidays. And when we come back in January, we hope to have some new and exciting things for you here on the Need to Know podcast. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe. Also, you can send us an email at needtoknow@wilsoncenter.org. We'd love to hear from you, and thank you for listening. <laughs>